Thank you so much. It's honored to be back here. I was just here in October. How many of you were here in October? You heard me speak. Well, I'll tell you, you guys look better today than you did back in October. You're going from glory to glory. Since then, my youngest daughter had a baby, so we have now six grandchildren. And this is absolute truth. Last week, someone asked me, what's, what's her name? Her name is Kezia, but I had a senior moment. I could not remember her name. <laughs> Seriously, I, my mind just went blank. And it reminds me of a, a story about uh, a retirement center in Florida. And you had uh, seniors there, and most of them are single. And so there was this widow and widower. They were falling in love with each other at this retirement center. Now, at these retirement centers, they have social events. You know, they have dances and dinners together so you, they can build community. And so, so this widower decided to ask at this dance for this widow's hand in marriage. And he did. But the next morning, he could not remember if she said yes or no. <laughs> He's so embarrassed. And so finally, he calls her up in the room and said, you know, I had a wonderful time with you last night. And she said, I had a wonderful time with you. He said, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm forgetting things. And I know I asked you to marry me last night, but I forgot what you said. And she said, I said yes. And I meant it with all my heart. And I'm so glad you called me because I forgot who asked me to marry him last <laughs> night. So, <laughs> so I had that moment last week. I'm not confessing anything negative, okay? I believe I have the mind of Christ, but we do have moments. Um, it's great to be back, and I love New York. I really mean that. Uh, I have roots here. Uh, my uncle worked in Manhattan and had a house in New Jersey. My wife was born in New York City. And so she grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, but she was born in New York City. And so I grew up in Maryland, though, and, um, and it's great to be back on the East Coast. But in 1984, God called me to Los Angeles. And so uh, we're right in Pasadena, which is 20 minutes from downtown LA, the first suburb of Los Angeles. And uh, we are just seeing God do amazing things in LA, in a place of darkness in many ways. You know, you have. Uh, you know, Hollywood, which produces 80% of the world's pornography right down the street from where we are, and yet in the midst of darkness, how many of you know the Bible says wherever sin abounds, grace abounds, all that much more, amen? And so, likewise in New York, I believe in the midst of uh, your governor uh, passing a bill, late-term abortion bill, uh, and all the people cheering as he signs it uh, in the midst of this, uh, I believe that God's going to use you to bring about revival and reformation. And wouldn't it be wonderful if it started in New York City where that bill was signed that we ended up overturning Roe v. Wade, you know? And uh, now I know some of you are new and you're saying, oh, is he here to talk politics? I'm not. I, I want to preach from the Word. But this has been so much on my heart watching the news and seeing you guys in the news and then to have the governor of Virginia uh, shortly afterwards, who's a medical doctor, says, well, if a late-term abortion is botched, uh, you could make a decision to... Um, keep the baby alive or kill the baby. And I'm saying, this is insanity. This is infanticide. And uh, this is wrong. And, uh, and I believe we're here to bring justice, and justice is correcting anything that's wrong in society. We are the salt of the earth and light of the world. And so, um, so anyway, um, I, I say that because I, I really feel there's a real prophetic destiny in New York. New York was the catalyst of a great revival, as you know, in 1858 with Jeremiah Lampier, right here, right in this walking distance from here, Fulton Street, that uh, brought incredible revival 
uh, to America. It was a prayer revival, but two million people got saved out of that revival. Interesting enough, that revival hit northern part of the United States. It didn't really hit the south. It began in New York, in the northern part of the United States. And, um, and what happened was is that when the north got awakened, they became abolitionists. And, uh, and uh, of course, in 58, 1858, slavery was still you know, legal, and it was prevalent everywhere. It was predominantly in the South. Uh, and yet, even in Great Britain, they had stopped slavery by 1833, and uh, slave trade by 1806, and yet it was still strong in the United States. But what happened was is that, unfortunately, we had to go through a civil war, but the revival brought about the consciousness that people are made in the image and likeness of God. And so we, th that slavery is an abomination to God. Well, I want to just declare to you that babies are made in the image and likeness of God. You know, there's 619 laws in the Old Testament. Most of them are ceremonial laws in Leviticus and all that. But they've been reduced to 10 in the Ten Commandments. And we all know, you know, that we should have no other gods before him. We know that we should honor the Sabbath. We're talking about that. And I wish I could give a whole message on rest because how many know New York needs to have a revelation of rest <laughs> and the Sabbath? <laughs> and of course, um, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. But the sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. 619 laws are reduced to 10, and one of them is taking an innocent life is wrong. And that has not changed. And so we need to. I believe, in my, just my opinion, but my opinion is that just like the slavery issue was uh, with uh, the Great Awakening with William Wilberforce in Great Britain and, of course, the abolitionists in the United States during the 1858 uh, prayer revival, I believe today the abortion issue is the social issue because life trumps other social issues. You know, I mean, I believe in you know, reformation and helping the poor and our ministry is targeting uh, we are planting churches among the 12 million uh, illegal, undocumented immigrants in California. Uh, since our governor declared California to be a sanctuary state, it's like the gold rush. Every his Latino immigrant that's illegal is moving to California for safety. But we see that the harvest is coming to us, and so we're planting churches among them. It's just been amazing. We planted six churches already among them just in 2018. And so uh, we are just uh, going after the harvest, and they're so wide open because they're in so much fear. But I mean, no, perfect love casts out fear. When people get a revelation of the love of Jesus Christ through the gospel presentation, it brings about a revolution that is just uh, what God intended from the very beginning. Listen, I wrote a new book that came out in January, Modern Day Apostles, and, um, and it's really interesting. Uh, because um, the word apostle or apostles plural appears 82 times in the New Testament. Guess how many times the word pastor appears? Anyone? Just give me a number. You're right, only one time. Ephesians 4.11. That he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastor. That's where it appears. And teachers. So we built the whole government around this word that appears only one time. And I'm a pastor, by the way. I'm not denigrating pastor. I love pastoring, all right? <laughs> but I'm just saying is that where did we go from the early church where there were so many apostles that in Ephesus, 
and, and John writes in John uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, there's one thing I have against you. You've lost your first love. But he commended them for their hard work, their perseverance, that they discerned false apostles and found them to be false. In other words, there were so many false apostles, it stands to reason there were also true apostles. And they had to discern between false. And so we see all these people called apostles that were not part of the original 12. The 12 will have a special place. They are called the apostles of the Lamb. But what about Paul, who was not part of the 12? Or even Jesus' brother James, who didn't even believe in him. John 7 says his brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And then James becomes the presiding apostle in, by Acts 15 in Jerusalem. And there are women apostles, Junia, in Romans chapter 16. For those who don't believe in women apostles, I don't know what you do with Heidi Baker. <laughs> you know? We have a woman apostle in our network who has planted 20,000 churches in Uttar Pradesh, India, the northern part, the most unreached part of India. 20,000 churches. In fact, she called me three years ago. She was in Denver, and she was calling me about our conference coming up, and she calls me Papa Che. She said, Papa Che, I have a problem. I said, what's your problem? And she said, I can't break through the 100,000 barrier. And I said, I beg your pardon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, last year we led 100,000 to the Lord, and this year we led 100,000. It's not 110, it's not 120,000, it's 100,000. I can't break through the 100,000 barrier. And I said, Leanna, that's a great problem to have. <laughs> Most pastors in America are trying to break the 100 barrier in church membership, and you're leading 100,000 people to the Lord. She is an apostle. So why did Jesus call them? apostles. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if you know, he spends all nine prayer in Luke 6, verse 12, he spends all nine in prayer. We, by the way, we see the humanity of Jesus there. He's 100% God, but also 100% man. It's a mystery of the incarnation. And he chose while he was in ministry, at the age of 30, he began his ministry to be man dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. And so he's doing listening prayer, all night prayer, and then when he comes down from the mountain, in verse 13, Luke 6, 13, he chooses 12, and he calls them apostles, which is a secular term. There's no word apostle in the Old Testament. I mean, if he had called them priests, they would have said, oh, wow, the Levites are priests, and now we're priests, and maybe this is a new wineskin of priesthood. If he had called them prophets, they would have been honored because Israel had a history of prophets, including the father of our faith, Abraham, was called a prophet in Genesis chapter 20. Up to John the Baptist, whom Jesus said, among those born of woman, there's no one even greater than John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, and I love this verse, but in verse 12 it said, but the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. You're the newest born again believer you're greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You carry Jesus. You carry the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within you. And may you receive that by revelation. I mean, it's just a mind-boggling truth, but it's true. That's why you've been changed. I mean, I, I should either be dead or in prison because I was a drug addict, a high school dropout, which is, by the way, the unpardonable sin for a nation to drop out of school because the whole, whole person, reason for my dad immigrating is for us to get a good education. But I was a high school dropout. I was a hippie, drug addict, 
By the time I was 15, I did everything from heroin to cocaine to barbiturates. I was dropping acid every day. My mind was so fried, it was reduced to one word, maybe two words. Wow, man. (laughs) (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when I was dead... In my trespasses and my sins, he made me alive together with him. By grace, we've been saved through faith. Thank God for praying parents. They didn't know what was happening. I refused to cut my hair for three years. My hair was down to here. You know, they're immigrants. They don't understand what hippiedom is all about. And I'm not sure. I may have been the first Korean hippie in the United States. I'm not sure because I, I didn't meet another Korean hippie. <laughs> and, uh, but they prayed, and my grandmother prayed. Uh, my grandmother passed away a few years ago at the age of 105. By the way, if your grandmother's praying for you, you don't have a chance. You will get saved. And so I didn't have a chance. And it was just like I got radically saved. It's a long story, but um, I got saved at a Deep Purple concert, honestly. May 25th at the Baltimore Civic Center. I had an encounter with Jesus. I walked out of the uh, Civic Center, and I was instantly delivered from drug addiction one day. Just was part of the Jesus People Movement, which is a real supernatural time where all these kids were getting saved left and right, and uh, I was one of them. And uh, I've never gone back. I've never backslid, taken drugs. I don't believe you have to go back. And, you know, he, because you're a new person in Christ. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17, old life has passed away. Behold, all things are new. But you have to take up the cross daily, don't you? And follow Jesus Christ. So every day you just commit your life off your body. It's a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service of worship. Worship is giving your heart, your life to Jesus. Not just your spirit, because we unfortunately have been so influenced by Greek thinking. Everything is platonic. Everything is Plato, thinking of dualism, the spirit from the body. The body is inferior, the spirit is only good, the spiritual world is good, and the physical, natural world is evil. Nonsense. God created the universe and said, it is good. It is good. It is good. And then when he created you and me, he said, it is very good. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And so, why did Jesus call them apostles? Because apostles actually was almost offensive to call them apostles because they knew who the apostles were. The Romans used that term in their culture. And the Roman culture, Roman, you know, empire, their whole MO was to just conquer and colonize, conquer and colonize. They realized in order to colonize, they had to bring Roman culture, Roman law, Roman roads, Roman ways to that conquered territory. And the person to enforce it was a military person. He was either a general or an admiral. And if people didn't conform, they were either enslaved or they were crucified. Anyone who would rebel... You could not crucify a citizen. You executed them, beheaded them, but you didn't. But you could crucify anyone in the in the conquered territory of the Roman Empire. And so, apostles were not popular. They were not the ones, you know. And by the way, if once they got established, then they, the the uh, Caesar, the emperor, would send a governor. So Pontius Pilate was an apostle. It was sent by the word apostle, apostolos, the Greek word sent out one, but was sent by the emperor to bring about Roman culture in the conquered territory. So here's what Jesus is saying. I also have a kingdom. I also have a kingdom culture. And it looks like heaven. 
It's not like the Romans. And wherever you go, as apostles, your responsibility is to transform society to bring heaven to earth. We call it the Great Commission. Make disciples of nations. Now, please hear what Jesus said. He didn't say make disciples in nations. He didn't say win souls and then disciple them. Of course, that's part of it. But he said, I want you to transform nations to reflect heaven. I want you to so change the nations that if my father shows up, he'll be at home. That's what it means to be apostolic. So we know we're to be prophetic. You may not be called to be a prophet, but we're to be prophetic because John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me, all of you. How many of you are God's sheep? All right, so if you're not, do not leave this place without becoming part of God's family and, and uh, giving your heart to Jesus Christ. Now, we may not be the next Billy Graham, but we're all to be evangelistic. Amen? Amen. We may not be called to be an apostle, but we're all to be apostolic. We're to change the culture around us, the sphere around us, to bring heaven's culture, to bring kingdom values. We could all do that. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. I'm going to give this to Bill and Tammy. And, um, but I brought... Uh, I was speaking at a conference. I have a leftover of this new book, and so if you'd like to get it, all the proceeds go to our apostolic network called Harvest International Ministry. Um, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and um, I want to use this verse as a springboard, and I want to talk about heaven on earth. And, you know, there's so much, and I notice one of your values as I was walking around your place as heaven on earth. And, uh, and of course, you have Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So one of the ways we see heaven come to earth is by praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I need to give you a little bit of background to the word heaven because the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. So the Jewish people had, a, had a, a three heavens that they considered to be heaven. One would be the atmosphere. The other would be the constellation. I can't see the constellation in L.A. because we're just so lit up. But, but if you go to Colorado or go to Alaska, you know, where it's dark at night, you can see the Milky Way is gorgeous, right? But the third heaven, it's not in the air. It's God's dimension. And it's very close to a dimension here on earth. It's almost like they overlap or they interlock. And you see, you could go from heaven to earth. So when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the word repent, yes, it does imply turning away from your sins. But the word, Greek word, the literal meaning is metanoia, which means to change the way you think. All right, so Jesus is coming on the scene and says, I want you to do a paradigm shift. I want you to change the way you think because heaven is now within reach. Now, so I want to submit to you to rethink about heaven. In the Western culture, the predominant understanding of heaven is that if you're born again, if you're a Christian, you'll die and you'll go to heaven. Even unbelievers, if you ask them if, if uh, you were to stand before the gates of heaven and Peter greets you, 
And Peter says, why should I let you in? What would you say to him? And most of them think they're going to heaven. They would say, well, I was a good person. You know, and of course, that's the wrong answer. Because all of us are sinners. And we fall short of God's glory. A lot of us, we think of glory as being God. We fall short of God, which is true. But the glory is our humanity before the fall. We're made in the image and likeness of God. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars, the moon, which your hands have made, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you would visit him? But you have made him a little bit lower than, your translation will say angels, but that's a bad translation. The Hebrew says Elohim. You're made a little bit lower than God, and you crown him with glory and honor. You are so awesome. That's why we have to be pro-life. Every life matters because every life is made in the image of God. He's made us a little bit lower than God. By the way, a month ago, not a month, maybe around three weeks ago, I saw the movie Unplanned. They showed it to pastors in our city, and I was undone by that. I think this could be, a, a, through the media, a game changer for the pro-life movement. So I want to encourage you, if you have not seen that, it comes out this weekend. I think it's already out. I'm, I just lost track of time. Uh, but uh, see it and bring your friends to it. And um, it already is breaking box office record. Uh, the world did not expect this movie to take off. But it's done with excellence. I mean, it's just, it's not a cheesy Christian movie. It is like the, I mean, seriously, forgive me for saying that. But, you know, I tell you, you know, we are to be the head and not the tail. You know, Deuteronomy 28, 13, we should be the ones producing the best of anything. You know, and it's just a reflection of God's beauty and his excellence. And so, but anyway, I, I just a little commercial there. But I'm, I'm not a spokesperson for it, but I am pro-life and anything to advocate that I uh, I want to encourage you to see that. Anyway, so so uh, going back to um, Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way we think of heaven is that if we're born again, we'll go to heaven, which is true, which is true. I mean, we have eternal life, okay? But we just think that's our end game. And the New Testament doesn't emphasize that. It doesn't really uh, uh, talk about dying and going to heaven, all right? It talks about, yes, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But what it does talk about all throughout Scripture is bringing heaven down to earth. So here's the way I want you to rethink. Repent, rethink. Don't think about being raptured out of here and things are going to get worse and worse and I'm just buying my time until Jesus comes back or I go home to be with the Lord in heaven. No. I want you to think of bringing heaven down to earth. You all have a mandate to do that. All right. So I want to give a little theology of heaven on earth. We see this everywhere in Scripture. It's not just isolated in Matthew chapter 6 and the prayer that Jesus taught us. From the very beginning, God's purpose was to have heaven on earth. So he created man, Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden, which was heaven on earth. It was paradise. No sickness, perfect atmosphere, perfect climate. By the way, it never rained. Uh, the, the mist would rise and water the vegetation. Total peace, the shalom of God. 
And right in the middle of the garden was God himself who walked with man and woman in the cool of the day and talked with them. I mean, you talk about paradise. Oh my! But see, God never intended for it to stay in a small geographic location. So he says in Genesis 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was God's purpose, heaven on earth, not just in one small geographic location. That as people would multiply, they would fill the whole earth with his glory. God's so committed to it, he says in Numbers 14, 20, as surely as I live, the whole earth will be filled with my glory. So it hasn't changed from the beginning. By the way, just a side note there. God wants us, that hasn't changed. He still wants us to be fruitful and multiply. What am I talking about? First of all, you've got to get married, okay? So I want to prophesy to the singles here, okay? <laughs> and then secondly, you have to have babies. And can I encourage a lot of babies? And I know, you know, our Western civilization, this materialistic civilization said, well, we can't afford but that's when you move in, in the natural instead of in faith in God, who is a God who meets all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If I ask you, do you believe in Philippians 4.19, my God shall meet all your needs? How many of you would say yes? Amen. All, but yet we're afraid to have children because we think we can't afford. It's a contradiction. It's just, it's just theology or just what we call high value, but it's not a core value. You're not living it out. Why do I say that? Because Islam is the fastest growing religion right now, globally. And they're not growing through conversion growth. They're growing through biological growth. Wow. Like when you go to Europe, especially in London and Paris or Amsterdam, it's just like you see the, if you're white during the minority, that may be true in Los Angeles and, and New York City, but it's pronounced in Europe because of their immigration laws. And you have Brexit taking place because they want to stop that flow that the European Union has mandated that they accept without really vetting people. You know, so Germany has a huge problem. But, but here's the point I want to make. The average Muslim family in Paris has seven kids. The average French family has only one child, less than one child. That's the stat. You just do the math. Within like four generations, they will take over population-wise. They can put anyone in office just from, just from uh, not, not through Sharia laws or a takeover or terrorism or violence, just through the process of voting people of their people in. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Just through democracy, the democratic system, they can get their radical Muslim leaders into office and transform within the law. See, the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of the kingdom. And here we are, you know, just thinking, well, now, I'm not, you've got to be led by the Lord. Please hear my heart. I'm not saying just be rabbits and just reproduce like crazy, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I, we, we have four adult children, and we wanted more, but uh, physically, my wife couldn't have more because we had problems in the third and fourth pregnancy. So obviously we've been led by the Lord and we realized that uh, the Lord was closing the door, so to speak. But, um, but I really believe that this word needs to get back out into the church, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So the purpose is in the garden. We see God in the midst of that. 
and he wanted heaven on earth, paradise on earth, but unfortunately, man sinned. And sin came into the garden and death because of sin. You know, it's really interesting just looking at um, the Middle East and where the Sahara Desert is. You know, people have found bones of whales, hippopotamus, um, um, just animals that would not live in the desert. And the reason why is because at that time it was lush. But sin came in and death because of sin. And we see the Sahara growing. By the way, as Islam is growing in northern Africa, so is the Sahara Desert. Wherever Islam goes, the land begins to die, literally. Scientists have done a study. Like, for example, in Indonesia, the, the largest Muslim nation in the world. And... Um, and I've been to Indonesia so many times. Uh, the good news is now 35% of Indonesia is born again. Can you believe that? I mean, you know, every year 20 million Muslims are getting saved. That's the good news, all right? So thank God for that. The bad news is that uh, because Islam is spreading, the land is literally dying in Indonesia. What do I mean by that? They are killing off trees left and right, deforestation. They don't have any kind of environmental policy. They just want to get rich. And so because of the love of money and the love of power, they're actually killing the land. There's no, I, you go to Bali. I've, I, I'm a scuba diver. I'm a licensed scuba diver. And, uh, and I love to snorkel. And so I've been all over the world because of my travels to snorkel and, and to preach. And it's just a side thing I do. <laughs> yeah, I've... I've Snorkel, I scuba dived in South Africa off of Pemba Beach, you know, when I went to visit uh, Heidi, et cetera. And, and so I'm snorkeling in Bali, one of the most well-known resorts globally. And the water was absolutely filthy. Bottles, plastics, everywhere. Because the Indonesians, you got to understand, Creation care came from God. I'm not talking about being a, just a tree hugger and environmentalist. I'm not talking about that, okay? But I do believe that we're to steward the earth. Can I hear an amen? Are you following? Because God said it is good from the very beginning, and we need to keep it good. But where did that value come from? It comes from the DNA that we have from God, even the Western world, unfortunately, and the Eastern world, and where Islam, they don't care. So just a small example. Another example, let me give you. Hinduism. Hinduism, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, I was into Eastern religion before I gave my life to the Lord. I was searching. But um, there's a great book called The Book That Made Our World by Indian, Indian scholar Visha Magawadi. And uh, he said something about his people that was really fascinating because in Hinduism, we believe in karma. What's karma? Karma is, as you know, even though publicly they won't say this, but there's a caste system in India. The Brahmin caste, the white, the ones that look more Aryan are the upper class. And then the outcasts, the lowest, are the darkest people, which is interesting. And they're rejected in that society. They're the poorest of the poor in India. Here's what karma says. You cannot help that poor person to better their life. If you mess up with their karma, they'll be reincarnated into worse state, they'll come back as a cow, an animal. So they don't help the poor there. So who's helping the poor? Who's building hospitals, schools, and taking care of orphans in India? Uh, 
Christians. We've been doing this ever since the British colonial period. You know, you say, well, the oppression of that, but if you see any kind of infrastructure, if you see anything good, it became because of the British missionaries. And thank God for that. All right, so wherever we go, we bring heaven on earth. And this is really important. So we see in the garden, then we see with uh, Moses in the wilderness. It's a picture, it's a prophetic picture of Jesus on the cross and releasing his kingdom in his fullness. Now Jesus begins his ministries by saying, the kingdom of God's at hand, but it will culminate in his death and resurrection where his kingdom will come in full power. All right? And so so we see a prophetic picture of that with the wilderness. So here's what happens. As they've been in slavery, God says, I want you to take a lamb without blemish, a male lamb, and sacrifice that lamb and put the blood on top of the door, on the side of the door, and the rest on the bottom. What is that a picture of? The cross. And then roast that lamb and wear your clothes and sandals as you eat the Passover lamb and the and the, the spirit of death will pass over your house and leave Egypt. Egypt represents sin and the bondage of sin. We're talking about slavery. And here's the thing that I think we need to just preach more about is that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, he doesn't just forgive your sins and thank God that he does forgive our sins, but he delivers you from the bondage of sin. You don't have to be an addict anymore. You don't have to have bulimia or any kind of eating disorder. If anyone being Christ is a new person because this is a prophetic picture. You come out of the bondage of slavery, whatever that thing was holding you back before you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Of course, for that, the metaphor is, is literal slavery to the Egyptians. They go through the Red Sea, which is a picture of water baptism. That's what Paul says. And then you come into the wilderness, you think of the wilderness... Now, unfortunately, just like there was sin in the garden, there was still sin with the Jewish people. They made the golden calf, and they, you know, got, uh, they grumbled, they complained, they rebelled against God, the rebellion of Korah. You see that, but here's, but look at it from a macro perspective. It was heaven on earth. Why? First of all, God provided a cloud during the daytime to protect them from the sun and a pillar of fire at night. Perfect weather. They had bread every day, manna. They had protein, quail. There was no starvation. There was no poverty. There was no one poor. They actually had plundered the Egyptians of gold, silver. But here's the supernatural part. Water, supernatural water, when they needed it. Out of the rock. Supernatural food. Their clothes did not wear out for 40 years. Can you imagine in New York if clothes didn't wear out for 40 years? The <laughs> garment industry would be absolutely bankrupt. <laughs> there was not one feeble one among them. There was no one sick for 40 years. This is in the Old Covenant. But it's a prophetic picture of what our inheritance is. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's every spiritual blessing the heavenly places, but you've got to pull it down by faith. That's our inheritance. Are you following what I'm saying? So if that's in the old covenant of heaven on earth with sin, the golden calf, but right in the midst of it was the presence of God. It was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. 
God told Moses to build an ark of acacia wood, and the Ten Commandments would be in that ark. Two cherubs facing each other, and in between would be the mercy seat, and said, my presence will preside there. So Moses pitched a tent, a tabernacle. It's called the Tabernacle of Moses, and he would go into the tent and meet with God, and God would speak to him. And here's the thing. When you have the presence of God, God is speaking. He wants to speak to you. My sheep hear my voice. One of the first signs of the Holy Spirit being manifested, prophesied by Joel, Joel 2, 28, and then in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 17, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. The first manifestation of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. I love the prophetic. I love when God speaks to me. You know, I uh, lost my wedding ring uh, last year. As, um, and uh, what, what happened, long story short, is that uh, I got fat over the years. I never took my ring off, and I was stuck. I could not get it off. And we have a jeweler in our church, and he cut it off and remade the ring, but he made it really loose. And so I don't know when I lost it. I was just walking, and all of a sudden my ring's gone, and I'm retracing my step, and I'm looking. Of course, I'm praying Bobby Connor's prayer. I don't know if you ever heard his prayer. He had lost his buck knife and said, I want my knife back and the knife just fell from heaven down to, it's the coolest testimony. And I, we've heard so many testimonies like that, all right? So I've said, I want my ring back. Nothing happened. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm searching, and so now six months is coming, and then it's now near our anniversary. And so Sue asked me, what do you want for your anniversary gift? And I said, you know what? I think I, I've looked everywhere for the ring. I can't find it. I like to get a new wedding ring, you know, obviously, because I was six months without a wedding ring. I'm traveling, and people are looking. I'm single, <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I, I need to really have some, some help here. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and sh but she, you know, my, my wife is so full of faith. She said, well, let's just continue to believe God that you'll find it. So I'm just having my quiet time. I'm sitting and just praying and reading my word, and I just asked, Lord, where is my wedding ring, and I hear the Lord say in a small, still voice, go to your bedroom closet and look at the, where the closet door is, and you'll find it. Now, we have a relatively new house, and uh, especially in the closet where there's not been a lot of traffic, and the carpet is pretty plush. So I found my wedding ring exactly where the Lord said, by the door, but it wasn't like this, where you can see. That's why I never saw it. It was down with the top just showing and was in the carpet. So I just saw this little white spot appearing. And I said, can't be. <laughs> Is that the top of And I bend down, and sure enough, it was my ring. And I said, God, you're so practical. You're so good, and you're so kind. Here's a verse I want to give you. Isaiah 30, verse 20. He's going to whisper behind you. This is the way walking in it, whether to the right or left. It doesn't say he's going to shout it to you. He's going to whisper to you, just like Elijah heard a small, still voice. Why? Because he wants intimacy. You have to draw closer to him in order to hear that small voice. And he says in James chapter 4, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And so I love the prophetic. And so just, you know, it's just so practical. And, uh, and so we see... Um, how God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. The presence of God was right there, heaven on earth. 
Real briefly, the other example I want to give in the Old Testament is Solomon's temple, building of Solomon's kingdom in his reign. And uh, whereas David was a man of war, but in Solomon's reign, it was total shalom. There was no war. First Kings chapter 5, I believe it says in verse 7, there was no Satan. There was no evil in his kingdom. It's a, it's a stunning verse. There was so much prosperity that silver was just thrown out. There was no one unemployed. Everyone was blessed. There was no poverty. By the way, to me, systemic poverty is part of the curse. And when we talk about heaven on earth, there's no poverty in heaven. And so on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why, you know, uh, we go to the poorest nations to eradicate poverty, to bring God's redemptive new creation, not just to the people, but to the city. <laughs> I've been to Pemba half a dozen times. Every time I go there, by the way, they were the poorest nation when Heidi and Roland Baker went there at one time, the poorest nation in the world. That's why they went there. But you go there, and in Pemba, they discovered oil, the petroleum right off the shore of Pemba. The town is booming. I mean, before there was even no restaurant. Now you can go to a Chinese restaurant in Pemba. It's amazing because the Chinese are going there and investing and they're building restaurants for their, uh, their workers. Five-star hotels. It's just unbelievable the transformation that we've seen uh, wherever the gospel goes forth. It brings redemption and lift. All right. So Solomon's reign is a picture. But Solomon sinned. It wasn't perfect. He was still a sinner. You know, he went after... Uh, the, he had all these wives, plus 400 concubines. I don't know <laughs> what kind of sex drive he had, but, you know, he, 400 concubines. What do you do with, you know, 400 concubines? And, uh, and yet, unfortunately, these were pagan women that caused him to turn his heart away from God and go after their pagan gods. So you see sin in the midst of heaven on earth, just like in the wilderness, in the midst of heaven on earth, the golden calf, idolatry, the two sins that God goes after over and over again is idolatry and immorality. And it hasn't changed today. Idolatry. And unfortunately, I just shared with you that God wants to bless you and prosper you. Poverty is part of the curse. The other side of it is that you cannot serve God in money. The love of money is the root of all evil, and so materialism will kill the church, will kill any revival. And so that's why, yes, just like John Wesley said, make as much as you can, but give as much as you can. And that's the thing to keep you. The reason why God instituted tithe was to keep the Jewish people from the love of money. Seriously, it's to remind you that everything belongs to him. You're just a steward, and, and so it's a, a daily reminder. So now we come to Jesus, who is perfect theology, as Bill Johnson says. I love that. And um, Jesus was heaven on earth. He was the temple of glory. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made that was made without Him. He's the one who created the universe. It was a desire's heart, but Jesus created it and spoke it, and the Holy Spirit executed it. But here's what it says in verse 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled. The same word about the tabernacle of Moses is now Jesus, the temple, with the glory of God, the Holy Spirit in him. 
And so how was heaven manifested? Every person he went to that came that were sick got healed, everyone. Not one walked away not healed. Every person who was demonized was set free. He took care of poverty in the sense that when the multitudes were there, he fed them. Not just fed them, there was so much food, there were 12 baskets left over. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So we're talking about heaven on earth wherever he went. That's why he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And then he starts to heal the sick in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4. Now here's what is really stunning. Jesus dies on the cross. And we just sang it, the enemy's been defeated. This is really important as we approach Good Friday, as we approach Easter Sunday, the significance of his death. To me, one of the most significant things of his death is that as Colossians 2, verse 15 says, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public display of them. He took back the authority that man lost in the garden, and he now holds the keys, Revelation says, of death and hell. He cast out Satan of his authority. Satan still exists. He still has power, but he has no authority. All right, And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and, very important, on earth. He couldn't have said that before his resurrection, before his death. Why? Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Satan tempted him. And his last temptation, he says, I'll give you the, all the kingdoms of this world if you bow down and worship me. Was that a lie? Was he just fabricating something? And if so, Jesus would say, that's not even true. You don't have authority to do so. But it was true because he did have authority to give him all the kingdoms of this world. But of course, Jesus comes back and says, you should worship the Lord your God and, and serve him only. So we know that Satan became the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, the god of this age, from the garden on. But something happens. And even Jesus prophesies this in John chapter, let's go here. I want you to see this verse, John chapter 12. And it's a real interesting um, passage because John um, um, talks about the Greeks who wanted to come see Jesus. And, uh, and says, sir, we want to see Jesus. And they never get to see Jesus. Jesus goes into a message, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains by itself, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was prophesying about his death and his resurrection. But then we come down to verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. We're talking about Satan, the ruler of this world will be cast out. So when we sing the enemy's defeated, we're really singing good theology. It is the truth. And now Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what he's implying is that I'm giving it back to you, Bill and Tammy, to take your city for me, to disciple nations. Sal, Jews, I'm giving you authority. Tread upon serpents, scorpions, over all the power. Not some, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Luke 19.10. It was all prophetic of what would take place on the cross. This is the greatest victory. And the resurrection speaks of the new creation beginning. 
with us becoming born again, but also a new heaven and new earth, which will ultimately come in Revelation 21. God never wanted to divorce us from this earth. We have, again, a dualistic theology in this Western world that was influenced by Plato, a Greek philosopher, who talked about two worlds. And, you know, this material world is evil. This world is evil. Unfortunately, Christians adopted that, was called Gnosticism. And they went into extreme asceticism, and they made a vow to have no sex, because they thought that was spiritual, so celibacy, which is still in the Roman Catholic Church. They made a vow of poverty, because this material world's evil. Look, there's nothing wrong if you want to give everything away, but God says, look, you are to use the resources I give you to advance my kingdom. That's a picture of why they plundered the Egyptians with gold silver to use it for his kingdom to come in the new world when they would go into, into the promised land. And so, uh, so this platonic philosophy has permeated the Western civilization. So we have dualism everywhere, secular, sacred. If you're a pastor, you're sac sacred. If you're in the marketplace, you're secular. Nonsense. The Hebraic mentality is God is involved everywhere. The word work, first of all, work is not a four-letter curse word. <laughs> How many know God worked and rested on the seventh? God created work. The word work in the Hebrew means worship. When you are in the marketplace, look, you could say, I hate my job. It's just a paycheck. It's just to so get me through. Or you could say, oh, my goodness, I'm a minister here in the workplace, and I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to take dominion. I'm going to transform this for Jesus Christ. I'm going to get as many souls saved, and I'm going to see it look more like heaven to get rid of corruption, to get rid of any dishonesty, to bring justice where there's injustice at work. See, you have to realize all of us are ministers, but this dualism, like clergy, laity, nonsense. The Bible says we're all kings and priests, Revelation 1, 6 and 1 Peter 2, 9. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so we've got to have a biblical mentality that God always wanted it to be one. That's why when you offer your body, it's not just offering your spirit. You're actually offering your body as a living holy sacrifice. You are a tripart person like God, who is triune. You're a spirit. You have a soul, which is also triune. Spirit, soul, I mean, mind, emotion, will. And you live in a body. And that's why the Bible says you're to keep your body holy because you've been bought with a price. It doesn't say you're spirit holy. It's already holy. You're a new creation. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But that's why the Bible says in Romans 6 to offer your bodies not as an instrument for unrighteousness, but for an instrument of righteousness. So you don't look at pornography. That's a part of your body that you don't use as an instrument for unrighteousness, but for righteousness. You don't steal anymore, but you work hard so that you can meet your need, but also give to others. It's an incredible revolution that Jesus began at Calvary. That's why, to us, Easter is the ultimate Christian celebration. Thank God for Christmas. I love Christmas because of the gifts. No. <laughs> but, but, but Easter is when the new creation began. Beginning of a new heaven, new earth. So closing, what can we do? How can we bring heaven on earth? I mentioned number one, pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's a serious prayer to bring heaven to earth. 
Second, here's what the word says. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink. It's not this metaphysical world. But it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, the word righteous, most people would translate that as, oh, I'm right with God, imputed righteousness and positional righteousness, which is true. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Right? All right. But that's not what that Romans 14.17 is talking about. That word righteous can be translated justice. Justice, peace, and joy. And what God is saying is that the way I'm going to bring heaven to earth is that wherever there's anything wrong with society, wherever there's injustice, your job is to bring justice into that situation and make right what was wrong. That's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And that's why we have to speak out against abortion. That's why we have to speak out against the poor and oppression and corruption and anything that is socially unjust and to bring justice into that situation. And when that happens, peace comes. Joy comes. We have some SSM students here, but I was just in Reading last week, uh, maybe a week and a half ago, and uh, I was speaking to, uh, at, on Sunday at uh, Bethel Church and also um, the SSM students on Monday. But for the first time, they have a nonstop flight from L.A. to Reading, which is great because before we had to go through San Francisco and have the layover, and sometimes you'll miss the connecting flight. There'll be delays. It's just always problems in San Francisco because of the fog and the weather there. So this nonstop flight is really nice. So, but it's a commuter flight, no first class. It's just all economy. And so my wife and I are flying there, and um, the um, airline attendant gets on the intercom and says um, that uh, the airplane is, is, is too heavy up at the front. Uh, is in balance. And so I'm going to ask for some volunteers to, I need two volunteers to go to the back. And no one volunteered. No one. Uh, and, and I'm sitting in the second row with my wife. Okay, number one, I didn't want to volunteer because I didn't want to leave my wife. But number two, I fly a lot and I know the back is the worst place. Just a little tip. The turbulence, if the plane flies, the back is where you feel the turbulence, not up front. And so I didn't want to feel the turbulence, so I didn't raise my hand. But no one was volunteering. And all of a sudden, you see this angst on this woman's face. She realized she has to be the bad person and ask some people, whether you like it or not, I'm asking you to sit in the back. And so all this tension is rising. It's a small example, but, but I just knew the right thing to do is righteousness, doing what's right, is to volunteer. So I said, I'll go back there. And you could see the relief and joy on her face. <laughs> And you could see the peace on the rest of the passengers in that area that said, oh, thank God, someone volunteered. Small illustration, but when you do something right, it brings joy and peace to society. And God wants to use you to be light of the world. He wants to use you to be salt of the earth. And so this is not, Jesus never came to create a religion. He came to create a new world. So that's why the Israelites you know, we're missing it because they're so nationalistic and they're so myoptic in perspective. They said, are you at this time going to establish the kingdom in Israel? And you know that in Acts 1, they asked after three years and 40 days of t 
teaching on the kingdom, they still ask this question. And Jesus doesn't really answer them. It's a cryptic answer, but he says this. He says, I am bringing my kingdom, but this is how I'm going to do it. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my martyrs. You're going to sacrifice your life, eradicate evil, just like I did when I went to the cross, eradicate evil. You're going to be like me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I don't want just Israel saved. I want the whole world to be saved, the ends of the earth. And I'm going to use you because you're going to become my follower. And as I lay down my life for the world, I want you to do the same thing in your world, in your sphere, right here in Wall Street in Manhattan to transform this city to reflect heaven on earth. Let's all stand together. I want us to just wait on the Holy Spirit. There's another verse that says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Most of you are familiar with that. What does that mean? It means to put Jesus king of your life. When we talk about his kingship, you have, to, you have to speak in terms, or even his lordship, his lord, you have to speak in time, in the context of the ancient world. The king was absolute sovereign. He owned everything. If he wanted your horses for his military, you just had to give it up. There was no two questions about it. He was the absolute supreme ruler. It's not like democracy here. You could like Trump or criticize him or, or hate him. But the king, if you spoke evil of the king, that's why when they greeted each other, they would say, Caesar is Lord. And you were to respond by saying, the Lord is Caesar. But when Christianity was birthed, they would say, Caesar is Lord. And they would say, no, Jesus is Lord. And ended up, they ended up becoming martyrs for that statement alone. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, it's not like, okay, I'll have him as my Savior, forgive my sins, and I'll, you know, play church and come on Sunday and give my tithe. And No, that's not what he intended. He wanted your whole life. And he wants you to be part of his family, but his new creation. And what you do now determines your role when he creates a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21. This is not wasted time. It's not just waiting for the rapture and when he comes and creates a new heaven and a new earth. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says. It's different from the great day of judgment. You're going to heaven. It's, that's not the issue. Judgment seat of Christ is your position in the new life to come. And I don't know about you, but I want to just live my utmost for his highest. If I could use uh, Oswald Chambers' title of his book. I want to give my life. I've been walking with the Lord for 46 years. May 25th will be my 46th year when I walked out of the Deep Purple concert. And I don't believe you have to backslide. I don't believe that you have to be dry and not be in the river. I'm not saying there's not moments of discouragement. It's like whitewater rafting. You're not always in the rapids still warm, but you're still in the river, all right? And so it's not about feeling, but it's about commitment. 
So what I'm going to ask is I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to make God, Jesus, your King and your Lord. All right. Would you do that with me right now? Let's all pray this to affirm those who are making it, maybe perhaps for the first time. But I want you to really mean it. Make this your prayer. Just say, Heavenly Father, forgive me for my selfishness, for missing the mark. I give you my life. I surrender all. I give you my future. I give you my finances, my relationships, my gifts and talents. I lay it all on the altar. It's all yours. And by your grace, I will follow you. I will obey you. I will trust you all the days of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Give me your power so I can transform my world. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Let's get